0: I'm not Sam Hogan, and you're not going to hear a sermon from Revelation chapter 2. When I got the call this morning that Sam is suffering from a virus, my heart went out to him. Uh, I know how hard it can be to be in the bed ill and wanting to be with the people of God and, and serving. So we pray for Sam, and we hope he gets better soon and that the family's protected So please open up your copy of God's Word to Psalm 59. Over the years, I've preached probably two, three dozen psalms, and I've often found that psalms are a wonderful place to go in the moment when you need a one-off sermon. So filled with the truth of God, so rich. These are the prayer praises of the Holy Spirit. Drawn out of the hearts and souls and lives of God's people of old, like King David, and then lived and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so that we can pray them and we can praise them. And they show us the scriptures, they show us the glory of redemptive history and their hymns and psalms of praise. Well, tonight we'll look at Psalm 59. You know, one of my favorite hymns is actually based on a psalm, and it's the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther. I'm sure you know it very well. But as I walk through life, often I focus more and more not on the mighty fortress who is our God, but the mighty foes that surround us and attack us as the people of God. And it's because of this line right here. Our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Satan. The dragon. It's horrible. The reality of evil. The reality of the attacks. Well, Well, how about you? Do you find yourself, like me, in the midst of the the trinity of evil, the world, the fallen world, the flesh, our fallen sinful flesh, and the reality of the devil and his followers, do you find yourself in the midst of that, here in this life, hounded, attacked and maligned and slandered, so that you feel alone, you feel isolated? You feel like you're in the Alamo? That you're surrounded by evil very often. You don't know what to do. Well, for as much as the world has been softened by the gospel through the transformation of the church, it's still hostile and brutal and evil and violent. That's the reality of our fallen world. And it's also the reality of the church, unfortunately, because we are a mixed body of the church at large, you know. We are the, the wolves and the sheep. Well, as we're surrounded, we're reminded that we're in the midst of a cosmic battle that's been taking place since the fall and the reality of what we call seed warfare, that, that the, the promised one to come, the, the seed of the woman will come forth and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And there will be this battle that takes place throughout history between the Lord, His people, and evil, and Satan in this fallen world. But in this life of faith, we, we've all felt surrounded at times. We can all identify with what we're going to see tonight in, in Psalm 59. We, we know experientially what it feels like to be in the Alamo. So that we look around, and from the world's perspective, there, there's no hope. There's no reason that we should hope. We're going to be overrun by the enemies of God and destroyed But as we come to Psalm 59, I think it's safe for us to say here in this place, in Peachtree City, that none of us have experienced the alienation of lies and jealousy that turned to attempted murder like the one who wrote this psalm, King David, experienced. But this psalm is attached to time and space and to a place, to a person in a historical context, and we need to see that so we can understand the, the, the big picture, the spiritual truth that we'll learn. Well, this was David's situation. He was facing death. Saul had broken covenant with the Lord and he had quenched the Holy Spirit with his pride and his jealousy and his rebellion, and so he began to hate not just the Lord, but the Lord's anointed. Remember, David is the man who is given a heart after the heart of the Lord. The Holy Spirit rushed upon David and never left him, but Saul turned away from the Lord, turned away from the covenant and rebelled and hated God and his actions and in his heart. And so he began to hate David too, the anointed of the Lord. Well, in the midst of all this, Saul is speaking lies about David and slanderous words about David. And they didn't just go off into the world and come to nothing, but they found fertile soil in the hearts of unbelievers and and wicked people so that these lies became, as it were, pregnant with more lies and more sin. And so David's reputation was destroyed in the eyes of many He lost his home, and he was even driven out of his covenant community. I mean, imagine being driven out of your own nation so that you're on the run. Well, his house is being surveilled at this point when he writes this psalm so that wicked men at any moment seeing him could just come forth and murder him. He'd been given a death warrant by Saul. So David was surrounded by the enemy. Seemingly all alone, except the reality that he wasn't alone. For the Lord his God was with him. Well, this psalm in its original context is an individual lament that breaks into a prayer for deliverance and justice because the one praying it has an audience with the Lord And you see, David illustrates for us what we're called to experience each and every Lord's Day as we gather into the house of God, as we hear His word, as we sing praise, as we're reminded yet again that we're sons and daughters of the King Most High through Jesus, our great Savior. That we have a relationship of sonship and daughtership and communion with the Lord. Well, this psalm is full of twists Ironic twist. David's on the outs with Saul, but he's in with the Lord. David has lost everything of temporal value, even his wife, and he faces the loss of his life. But he has everything of eternal significance because of the Lord's love and covenant. David is the Lord's anointed, even though he is cursed by Saul. David is alone, and yet, Never more surrounded by the power of the Holy Spirit and the promise of God. So, there's something so ironic about the Psalm. Everything that David experiences and prays for has been experienced by the church throughout time and history, physically, really and truly, but also spiritually. And that's where this brings home the reality for us tonight. Brothers and sisters, our prayer should be that the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes tonight, the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the real battle, the real warfare that we're in as those who are anointed in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved and sanctified, sealed with faith in the Holy Spirit. We need to see that. So regardless of your current situation, there is something in this psalm for you to give you hope, And to give power and structure to your prayers as the people of God. Well, this psalm is broken up into three main sections with three main themes. And then it's a perfect Hebrew chiastic structure where basically David states the theme and then bookends it and states it again so we don't miss it. And he does this three different times with three different themes And I think we can reduce this psalm to these three specific words to lead us through this message this evening. Psalm 59, the Alamo prayer, can be summed up in the words requests, reasons, and rejoicing. So let's read God's word together. Psalm 59, open up your Bibles, the middle of the middle, and hear the word of the Lord for you. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations, spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield." For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are a fortress and the God who shows me steadfast love. Amen and amen. The word of the Lord for us tonight as we come to the table. Well, this brings us to our first word this evening, our first thought. We see great requests here in this psalm from David to the Lord. We see great requests for deliverance, for, for the Lord to deliver David in the midst of this attack. Deliverance and defeat and destruction for his enemies. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2, and then verses 11 through 13 as he bookends this theme Deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. While David's enemies want to separate David from the Lord, the Lord has anointed David and made promises to him to be his God and to help him in time of need. What a great request he has here. It's a very pertinent request. It's a very personal request. Lord, rescue me. Rescue me. Deliver me, destroy them. But the anointed one remembers that even while the enemy surrounds him, so too does the Lord of hosts, the God of covenant love. He surrounds David. He is with David. That's what we see in verse 1. We see the reality that David has a, a personal enemy, but more importantly, David has a personal God. Who is the Lord? This is the covenant name for God. His personal name. I am that I am. Yahweh. You see all the the personal pronouns that David uses. Deliver me. O my God. My Lord. This is a a prayer song addressing the Lord and, and the second person calling for help. It's a petition for Him to bring about Salvation for David and judgment upon those who attack and want to destroy him. And this is a main theme that we see throughout Scripture. Deliverance through judgment. Don't we see that everywhere in Scripture? Deliverance for God's people in the midst of judgment. You see it in the ark. You see it throughout Scripture. Well, David's great request is a a complexity of opposites. He wants to be rescued. He wants to be delivered from murderers and lawbreakers. But for all that, he requests of the Lord for himself. He demands the opposite for his enemies. He wants them destroyed. And he wants himself to be vindicated before them. That's what we see in verses 11 and 12 and 13. Destroy them in their wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. But isn't it interesting the way that he teases out this in his prayer praise in the midst of the Alamo? He doesn't ask for the Lord just to come right out and snuff them out fast and furious so that they're gone in an instant. But he wants the Lord to move in such a way that he uses their own sin and their own rebellion to become their traps and their snares that bring down the justice of God upon them before the watching world so that everybody knows that God brought them to their end in destruction and judgment. You see, the God of the universe is big enough to use the sins of the reprobate to bring about their judgment and destruction, and to deliver David in the midst of this. So we see great requests in this prayer, this warrior psalm of prayer and praise, great requests for deliverance. Well, the second thing that we see is we see great reasons. David doesn't just make the request, but he backs it up with great reasons for the Lord to do this. And what we see here in one sense is almost like a childlike faith of David, and yet a childlike faith is still powerful because it's living faith. This is the reason for David's great request, backing it up for the Lord to act. O oh Lord, the enemy is not just my enemy, but he's your enemy, and he's also the enemy of your shalom, your peace. The enemy is corrupted by sin and his nature and acts according to the, the sin nature just like a dog driven by instinct, driven by lust and rage and destruction, driven not by shalom, not by peace, but by the opposite of shalom, ra'ah, which is chaos, which is wickedness, which is evil, which is rage. And that's what we see here through verses 3 to 7 and verses 14 to 15, the reasons for this request. He says, oh Lord, they seek to kill me, not because of my sin, because I've done nothing to them. David cries out, look, I am innocent in my horizontal relationship with these people that seek to destroy me because I've done nothing to them. I've done nothing wrong. I haven't sinned against them. They seek to destroy me and kill me because I'm anointed. I'm, I'm marked. I'm sealed by the promise of God and the greater David to come. So David's prayer praise here, even in the life and death situation of the Alamo, again, it's very childlike. Come forth, Lord, and deliver me because my enemies are your enemies and enemies of your gospel peace. So who is it that surrounds David? Well, listen to these vivid, descriptive words that David uses in this song, this warrior prayer song of deliverance. These are the words that he uses. These enemies are destroyers and criminals and murderers, fierce enemies, even hostile nations, wicked traitors, snarling vicious dogs, filthy speakers full of pride, curses, And lies. They're like wild dogs that are howling and prowling around at night. There's a a picture here of the reality of demonic evil at work. This is what David was up against. In the face of demonic dog activity, David calls upon the divine name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. In verse 5, come and deliver. Well, evil must be judged, and the wicked must be held accountable for their sins, their sins of their mouths, of their pride, their cursing, and their lying. And the wicked stand for the opposite of what God stands for. The wicked stand in opposition to God and to his plans and to his gospel peace. The wicked attempt to create restlessness and anarchy. On the earth, instead of bringing forth order, they sowed the seeds of corruption that that birth greater disorder. The wicked are like dogs. He says that again and again. You see, we have to see the psalmist's conception of dogs as is, is foreign to us, twenty first century Westerners. We love our dogs. In some ways, we love them more than our kids. You know the way that we go on and on about our dogs here in America. It's kind of weird. Really? But you see, for a a 9th century B.C. Hebrew, dogs were not pets. They were dangerous nuisances. They were wild. They terrorized communities. They would run around in packs with their wild nature driven by base instinct to, to bring chaos and anarchy and to destroy the peace with their incessant barking and their running after people and biting them. I think the closest I ever got to experiencing this to get kind of in the Hebrew mindset is the first time that I went to, to Peru on a mission trip. High up in the mountains of Juan Cavalica, we had to travel a long distance from the place that we were staying in the middle of town up to where the church was that we did VBS. And with Santos, we were doing ministry as, as uh, the, the youth group that went. And on the walk up, there were all these wild dogs running around. Eating from the trash heaps on the road as you'd go higher up into the hills. And we'd have to get the kids kind of over on one side of the road and and protect the girls and, like, you know, put your hands in your pocket. You know, don't play with them, don't look at them. These are wild, nasty dogs. Well, we need to see the picture here, the, the spiritual picture. The Old Testament compares dogs to those who are cursed and judged. It's pretty profound. It's pretty sobering. Well, the Revelation 22:15 gives us a picture. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. They are driven away from the face of the Lord. They are judged, they are cursed. They are not among the people of God saved and sanctified. The dogs. Well, Rosie and I have been blessed with a beautiful home of which we're trying to maintain and improve, but in God's divine providence, not as a Hebrew, but as an American, he's given us two dogs. And we see the reality of what takes place. We try to beautify, Beautify, they try to destroy. Maybe that's your experience with your dogs. Where we clean, they dirty. Where we fix, they break. And where we Seek to plant, to grow fruit and flowers, they dig up and eat. They bring chaos. Well, such are David's enemies. They are unholy instruments of the opposite of shalom, the opposite of peace. They are Ra'ah, they are chaos. And they fight against David and they fight against the Lord too. So David cries out in his reasons for rescue, arouse yourself to help me and see. Oh Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish. The divine warrior is the Lord of hosts. And he's David's God. Well, what are the reasons for David's great request? Is it because David saw himself as perfect and spotless before the Lord? You know, David, the anointed one, he's sinless, he's righteous. No, because just seven chapters earlier in the psalm, we read the, that horrible and yet glorious penitential psalm, Psalm 51, where David is crying out, confessing his great sin of adultery and murder. David's not standing before the Lord saying, rescue me because I'm a good man. But he does plead his horizontal innocence in his relationship to Saul, doesn't he? But that's not the foundation for his rescue. That's not the foundation for his requests. No, he asked the Lord to rescue him because his God is the God of covenant, faithful, love, love. And forgiveness. And he has drawn near to David and sealed his relationship with him through the one who would come, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why David could cry out in Psalm 110, the Lord is my Lord. He, He will sit at my right hand until I make a footstool your enemies of the nations. David knew that the greater Lord was to come even of his line to save him. So David calls to the Lord to see the evil and to come into to act because his enemies are the enemies of his God and his gospel. Well, we've seen David's great requests. We've seen David's great reasons. Now we see the foundation that they're laid upon. And this, for me, as I've meditated over this, this today, is just so awesome well, we see the foundation for this Alamo prayer, this third thought. The, the foundation for this great prayer in the midst of a desperate situation is gospel joy. The foundation is great rejoicing. I mean, this blows my mind. Who in their right mind within the midst of the Alamo begins to worship? You know, maybe people don't do this anymore because I know it's, It's probably not politically correct, but I grew up watching Davy Crockett in the Alamo. Anybody here do that? You know, he's down to his last. He doesn't even have any more bullets, and there's that scene. It's Walt Disney, by the way. And he's just swinging around his musket, and, you know, Santa Ana's guys are flowing over the walls, and he's done. There's no hope. There's no worship in the Alamo. But David is in the midst of the real Alamo, and he praises God. He breaks out in a refrain of worship. Why would anyone rejoice in the midst of the Alamo? David doesn't rejoice because he has great physical walls. He doesn't have any walls. He doesn't rejoice because he has great weapons. He doesn't have any weapons at this point. He doesn't praise the Lord because he has great soldiers. He's alone. He doesn't have a chariot He doesn't have great courage. He doesn't have great strength. He praises the Lord in the midst of the Alamo because his God is Lord Sabadoth. That's his name. You know, growing up singing a mighty fortress is our God, I didn't know what the heck that meant. Lord Sabadoth? Lord Sabbath? What is that? But you see, that is one of God's names. Lord Sabadoth means he is the God of the angel armies. That's who our God is. That's who David's God is. The God of the angel armies. You remember when Jesus was betrayed in the garden and the men came to take him away to seize him and Peter drew out that sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant and and Jesus said, put that little A little sort of way. Don't you know that I could call upon a legion of angels to rescue me? In an instant they would come. I mean, one angel, one archangel is more powerful than all the nuclear material on this planet. You see, David's God is the God of the angel armies. He is the God who is the fortress, the foundation, the shield, the bulwark. That's what he praises here. Verses 8 to 10 and 16 to 17. Oh, Lord, you are my strength. You are my stronghold. My God is his loving kindness. He will meet me. He will look in triumph upon my foes. I shall sing of your strength, O oh Lord. I shall sing joyfully of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. I will sing praises to you for God is my stronghold, the God of the angel armies. He shows me loving kindness. Isn't this amazing? Well, I think it's safe to say that the Lord our God enjoys great drama, doesn't he? He must Because the greatest drama is the drama of redemption and the the drama of redemptive history. And we're created in his image. We love drama too. And drama, what makes it dramatic is the tension between the need of being delivered and then the timing of how it comes about. That's when drama is really building, right? And here's David in the midst of the situation by the eyes of the world. There's no hope for him. But the God of angel armies is going to show up just on time and deliver David. And he holds fast to that. While the wicked are growling and howling, David praises the Lord. What a contrast we see here. The wicked, the enemies of the Lord God Almighty and his gospel peace, they're howling and prowling around at night in the darkness. But David is walking in the light of God's love. The Lord's loving kindness, this word over and over again, His loving kindness, His chesed, His faithful, loving, covenant, steadfast care for His people because of grace. We don't deserve it. We receive it. The righteous, those objects of God's gracious love and Messiah, they rise up in the morning and they walk in the sun of His love the Son of Righteousness, and we know that no matter what we face, the God of our salvation will show up just on time for us when we need it. What a contrast we see between the dogs and the lambs, the reprobate, And the elect in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, David knows experientially deep down that the Lord will come. And so he has confidence to worship even in the midst of the Alamo. How amazing. Verse 8 begins, But Lord, I know you and your ways. The cavalry's coming. And you see, the only reason we have not known the tsunami of God's wrath is Jesus The greater David, the one who comes to save us. Well, we see this gift of David's living faith on display as he prays from the Alamo. And it's not a a perfunctory faith, but it's one that's been tested and it's true. And don't we see the connection between David and Paul? As we think about them and their lives, I mean, they both had to flee in the night. They both were slandered. They both were persecuted. They both were being hunted down for their service to the king to be murdered and destroyed. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to be with him forever to God be the glory. Amen. What a prayer praise from the midst of the Alamo. Why is it that David and Paul could sing God's praise from the midst of what the world would consider to be a, a hopeless situation where they were doomed? Well, of course, it's because the greater David, the only sinless one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one worthy who who didn't have to experience the Alamo. He was righteous and pure, enjoying the the holy relationship that he had with his Father for all eternity. But he chose to step out of eternity into time and space to enter into the hopeless situation of his people in their sinful condition. Jesus pursued, and he paid it all for us by going to the cross. I mean, think about it. If there was ever anybody who could be in the midst of the Alamo and cry out, enough of this, deliver me, it was Jesus. And yet he held his tongue and he received the punishment we deserve so that in the midst of the Alamos of our lives, we can cry out, Lord, deliver me. You are my Redeemer and my hope. Well, he who knew no sin for our sake became sin so that in him we may become the very righteousness of God. King Jesus was surrounded by howling, reprobate dogs that sought to bite and savage and devour him as he was on the cross. And the Holy One held his tongue and he received the wrath that we might receive his reward of righteousness and peace with Almighty God. Well, brothers and sisters, in one sense, we are in the Alamo. We have to see that. This is the time where we spiritualize this psalm and we look at the reality of it because as one earthly pagan philosopher said, nobody gets out of here alive. We're in the Alamo. We have the shadow of death that comes across each and every one of us. And as the world looks at us with our faith, as the fallen world, the evil one, and even our own flesh cry out, they look at our faith and they say, you are stupid to believe this. You're irrational. You're weak. Why don't you just join with us and eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die? Forget this nonsense about God and redemption and eternal life and the glorious promise of resurrection, hope. That's what our enemies do. They, they seek to devour us. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to see the reality of the spiritual warfare that we are in. But you see, we've been given promises that the Calvary is not on the way, but has already come. Because the rescue has already been Realized. That's what the hope of the empty tomb is. Life forevermore. The fulfillment of Christ and his work for us. The Calvary comes to each lamb individually and corporately in the end, right on time. Brothers and sisters, we've lost many of our fellow sojourners over the past few years. Carriage Lane has lost many saints to death. But what they experienced in that moment, even in that Alamo moment, is that God is true and his promises are sure. And he brought them over to the very heart of his love and the person and work of Christ. Well, it doesn't take long for us, especially for young Christians as they live out the Christian life, to realize that this is hard. And it is grinding And the Christian life is wrought with pitfalls and we are in the midst of of a a spiritual arena that is spiritual warfare against our old man, our old nature that has been crucified with Christ. We no longer are under the, the, the dominion of sin, but we still experience its influence and its power. There's a battle there. And the fallen world that we live in, in the midst of, is constantly attacking and haranguing us like dogs that nip and bite and seek to destroy. And certainly the dragon, Satan, the liar, constantly comes, he and his followers, and attack us to try to get our eyes off Jesus and to get our eyes on our sins so that we despair and we don't live joyous lives in the Lord. But We have more than a champion. We have more than a fortress and a high tower. We have a person who is Emmanuel, Jesus, the Christ. So that's our joy. That's our hope tonight as we come to the table. We come triumphant. We come knowing that He will show up because He already has. So as we think about this, just two quick applications. Do you have the tendency to ignore the spiritual evil around you? Or do you make too much of it? See, I think the church in the Middle Ages made too much of it. There was a devil behind every bush and under every cup. They were constantly driven by the reality of that. But in our day and age, we just deny and ignore the reality of evil, real personal evil. Let's be careful not to make that our tendency, but pray that we would see the battle and know the Lord. Well, secondly, do you see worship as both defense and offense? What we're doing tonight is not simply just a nice thing, but it's holy warfare in which we are protected in the fortress of our God, but also as we sing God's praise, we drive the devil away. That's why we do it. It's offense, offensive weapons. Well, when we come to Christ, we come to the Lord's Supper. And he wants us to know these truths experientially down to the very core of our being. So in love, he's given us tangible signs and seals of his covenant, of forgiveness and peace and life forevermore in him. The bread broken, set apart, symbolizing his body broken for us and the the cup poured out his blood his lifeblood separated from his body because of judgment so that we would know life forevermore so we have the joys of this wonderful sacrament tonight to eat and drink with the lord and with each other so we need to be reminded that this isn't an altar there's not a re-sacrifice of christ here this is a joyful meal As we eat and drink and we remember the gospel and we remember with promises that God will show up and does show up right on time. And this is a table, a feasting table for those who have faith. So if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you're trusting in him alone for salvation and life and peace, then come on, rejoice, participate. If you're a member in good standing of any evangelical church, any church that holds to the Bible and the truth of the gospel, and come and join your hearts in this meal with the Lord and with his people. But if you're not a believer tonight, realize that you are in the world and outside of the Lord and you need to be in the Lord. So repent and consider your sin and your need for salvation and close with Christ. And know the sweetness of true life, even in the midst of the Alamo. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Almighty, we thank you so much for the gospel and for the fact that you indeed are Lord oath, the God of the angel armies. And that you've done everything necessary for us to have life and peace and salvation and joy. Not just for now, but forevermore. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that on the night that you were betrayed, you set apart the common elements of bread and the fruit of the vine. That we might eat and drink and hear your promise and by the power of the Holy Spirit be sealed even deeper in our hearts with your presence, with faith and hope, and love. So come and meet us at the table this evening. Meet us in the supper and lift us up, O Lord, and give us a greater sense of assurance and peace and power that you are our God and we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen.